Before I read our gospel lesson today, I'd like to begin by telling you what a pleasure and privilege it is to be with you this morning. I was grateful for the invitation to preach here in 1999 as the, the Reed Preacher Scholar, seven weeks into my first call as a pastor. I actually still remember very well the hospitality and kindness shown to me by Audrey Brown, among others, who was the chair of that committee, and it was so wonderful to see her again this morning. I was grateful for that award. It actually made a big difference in my life. It helped me buy my first house. It allowed me to become well-established in a pastorate that lasted for 13 years as my first call. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you here today as well in this month when I celebrate the 20th anniversary of my ordination. For the last seven years, I've been executive director of the Covenant Network, as, uh, as Rebecca said. Uh, that is an organization that on a national level works for the full inclusion of LGBTQ people in the life and leadership of the church. I'm grateful to your pastor, Jenny McDevitt, a friend and colleague who serves on our board of directors and to, the, and to your session here as well, not only for inviting me back, but for all of your steadfast witness and your hard work in becoming a church that bears faithful witness for all God's people. I'm grateful for you. Today, our gospel lesson is from Luke chapter 10, beginning at the 25th verse. Let's listen again together for God's word. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you shall live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said... The one who showed him mercy? Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my greatest childhood influences was the children's TV star, and I'm sure it's not just a coincidence, Presbyterian minister, Fred Rogers. Maybe Mr. Rogers was one of your influences, too, or, or your children's, or, or your parents. 
I'm not being nostalgic or exaggerating when I say this. I mean, really, Mr. Rogers and I spent a lot of time together in the neighborhood. I could sing most of his songs. I got an A on a ninth grade choir solo of, if you want to ride a bicycle and ride it straight and tall, you can't, actually, I'll do that after the service for anyone who'd like to hear it. I was known sometimes when taking my shoes off to sit on the end of my bed and toss my tennis shoe from one hand to the other, just as a habit. Though I was probably less conscious of this as a kid than I am now, I was also learning a lot of what it meant to be right or wrong, about self-worth and about the value of other people too, from this man who told us we were special and that he loved us just the way we were. If you haven't seen the documentary about his life from last year, I recommend it to you. It shows how this man with a theological degree and puppetry skills and an impressive collection of cardigans, whose show started appearing on American television screens right at the same time as the civil rights movement and marches and race riots and assassinations and liberation, how that show was born from the mind and even more the heart of a person who believed that children were vulnerable and in danger of going the way of violence and hate. And he committed to show them all the love and compassion and kindness he could with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. The documentary, of course, was called Won't You Be My Neighbor? It also shows a man whose life was not always and rosy and pleasant as the land of make-believe. Mr. Rogers' own experience as an overweight child being bullied and teased was what fueled some of his care for children 30 years later. He at times dealt with depression and loneliness. He recalls his passion for social justice being ignited by anger, seeing an incident in the early 60s captured in an iconic photo when a hotel manager dumped acid into the swimming pool where black and white children were swimming together. Even with all his accomplishments, even after 1,765 episodes, just before he died, Mr. Rogers, of all people, still spoke of his struggles to make sense of the world for those who would find it overwhelming, and children most of all. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us that Mr. Rogers couldn't resolve for all times and all people what it meant to be someone's neighbor. After all, as we heard in today's reading, it's a question some pretty important people have been trying to answer for a really long time. I mentioned how grateful I am to be with you this morning. Maybe you saw in the bulletin that when I was here before, you were in the midst of a sanctuary renovation, and therefore I was invited to preach up on the second floor in the gymnasium. I'd heard about the history and beauty of your athletic facilities, and I have to say upon visiting this week, they are every bit as lovely as I remember them. On that Sunday, they were accessorized by rows of metal folding chairs. There were some flowers. The great John Weaver was leading hymns from an upright piano in the corner. And the choir was down at the end by the basketball hoop. This space is also quite lovely, though. I, there's another reason I will not forget that day. There on one of those folding chairs sat none other than David H.C. Reed. It was just 18 months before he would join the church triumphant. 
And he made his way there to hear the recipient of an award bearing his name. I feel bad that I never got to hear Dr. Reed preach, but I've read many of his sermons published in those 30 books of them. I know the way he confronted the world's issues, the way he called for justice and change. I read the quote in the New York Times obituary talking about how those sermons were part of his philosophy of preaching, influenced by that famous saying about reading the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. I no longer believe, Dr. Reed said in that obituary quote, that the gospel can be preached week after week in fidelity to the Bible without reference to the questions that are agitating us and are reflected in the daily media. Ahead of his time, I say, and maybe a couple thousand years behind it, too. Because after all, there was more or less the same situation unfolding when the lawyer found himself face to face with Jesus. He posed a timeless question that he already knew the answer to, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The one right answer was the one that we've already heard in this service. It's the one that the lawyer gave, some of the most famous Bible verses of all time about loving the Lord with heart and mind and soul and strength. Jesus said, yes, that's right. But it's when the lawyer took his gaze from the Bible in one hand and turned it to the newspaper in his other that the real test began. All the stuff happening in the world, Jesus, all these people who look different and act different and, let's be honest, are different, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, let me tell you a story. Now, Jesus, like Mr. Rogers, knew the power of a story to teach, but Mr. Rogers also knew that sometimes you didn't even need a story. Sometimes you just needed a sign, a gesture, a symbol. The movie, the documentary, captures a moment when Mr. Rogers captured the, st the truth of a story with a simple act, a simple gesture. It all turned on his relationship with Francois Clemens, who we all knew on the show as Officer Clemens. Do you remember him? He was the neighborhood police officer. The real-life Clemens was not a police officer. He was far from it. He grew up in a poor black neighborhood, mostly fearing the police. He would go on to study opera. He actually won a Grammy. But back then, he was the first African-American with a recurring role in a children's television program. And in the show's most famous scene, Officer Clemens walks up as Mr. Rogers is sitting in his front yard with his feet in a wading pool, cooling off on a hot day. And Mr. Rogers invites Officer Clemens to take off his shoes and socks and put his feet, his African-American feet, into the wading pool with Mr. Rogers' extremely white feet. It was 1969. It was a big deal. And it taught many in that generation what it meant to be a neighbor better than any story could have. Sometimes what matters isn't so much the what happens as who it is happening with. The black swimmers in that segregated hotel pool, Officer Clemens, Mr. Rogers' friend, with their feet in the water together. Which is why when we go to Jesus' story today, we might pay attention to the who's in it. There's the priest, 
that's his religious title. There's the Levite, that's another religious designation indicative of his status and societal expectations of him. And then there's the Samaritan, who as many of us learned in Sunday school was somewhat lesser in stature. He was from a different geographic area, possibly not religiously observant or somehow believing the wrong things. He was the foreigner. He was the one strangely out of place in this story. And yet, he becomes the positive example that we should all be more like. These are the characters in the story, right? Wait. There's one other person in the story. I'm struck today by how rarely I have noticed this other person in the story. I'm struck by how little we know about him. We don't know his religion or where he's from. We don't know his race or ethnicity. We don't know his class or his status. We don't know his name. We know only one thing about him, which is what happened to him. He's a man who fell into the hands of robbers. I suppose it's possible that Jesus doesn't fill in those blanks because he wants us to ignore him, but I don't think that sounds like Jesus. Without this man, there's no story at all. There's no act of mercy. There's no one being anyone's neighbor. In fact, I think our tendency to overlook this figure isn't Jesus' oversight, it's ours. Of course we pay attention to the others. In fact, we project ourselves onto them, don't we? Maybe we reluctantly admit that we are creatures with religious credibility or status or privilege, like the priest or the Levite. Or maybe we admire the noble Samaritan who overcomes his outcast status and shows us up with generosity and caring. We should help the bleeding man by the road. We should chip in a few bucks to get him back on his feet. And by golly, we do that, don't we? But I dare say seeing ourselves in those characters lets us escape an even harder question. What if the experience Jesus is inviting us to is not to reaffirm our neighborliness by giving some tiny fraction of our abundance to help a nameless stranger that we won't ever have to see again? What if instead Jesus wants us to look for a moment upon this nameless one, this one who is broken and hurting? What if this parable is less about a good Samaritan than about this man who fell into the hands of robbers? And what if he is us? It's easier for some to imagine that than others. In the church of today, for whatever advances LGBTQ people have made in terms of rights and opportunities, I can tell you from my work around the country that the pain and struggle are still immense. People of different gender identities still encounter confusion and outright resistance People who are married or attracted to those of the same gender, even though they're now permitted to be ordained, still find few jobs, hostile colleagues, awkward and inappropriate questions. It can be true for others in the church too, for non-English speakers, for people with disabilities. It is possible to be here and still be broken and hurting by the side of the road. 
It's true in society as well. Some here know very well or know those who have been brutalized by those wielding power. Poverty consumes, prejudice envelops, talk of safety and security become the instruments that imprison and sap the life of the children of God. There's another way that I think we might find ourselves identifying with the man who fell into the hands of robbers. It happens on the inside, in our being. I know there are many here this day who experience this brokenness firsthand, even if nobody else around you knows it. Maybe we're consumed with fear, even behind our doormen and security guards. Maybe with loneliness, even in a city surrounded by people. Or uncertainty, even with academic degrees after our name. Or addiction, even when to all the world we appear to have our stuff together. This may be the hardest kind of brokenness, the brokenness that hides behind our relentless identification of ourselves as priest or Levite or Good Samaritan. The ones with privilege, with a call to help, or the ones with generous hearts, defying expectations, but who cannot realize, who cannot accept that we are the ones in need of the help, that we are the ones in need, the ones who have benefited from someone else's generosity. The promise of the parable is that we too are in need of a neighbor. And in that recognition, that relinquishing of power and stubborn insistence that we have the means and the answers and the smarts to fix everything, in that opening ourselves to mercy, friends, we begin the process of experiencing it. When we acknowledge our own poverty, we become a better steward of our wealth. When we walk in humility, we are able to apply our privilege for the transformation of the world. If we will only go to the doctor, the great physician will heal even us. When we find the strength to acknowledge that it's not merely our hard work, but the willingness of some other who recently or long ago put us on their donkey and forked over their wages to make us well, well, it is then and only then that we can help others with authenticity that we can love with heart and mind and soul and strength another as ourselves. Much has changed in the church and in the world since I last stood in this pulpit, well, near this pulpit. But there's one thing that hasn't changed, hasn't changed even since Mr. Rogers first took to the airwaves, hasn't changed in a long time. It's that the world is still anxious, living with an unrest fueled by cruelty, bigotry, and hate. I truly believe that on this day, this day especially, when we hear reports of warrantless raids threatening to unsettle families and imprison children, in this season especially, when politicians and candidates crowd stages to compete in who can manufacture more outrage, 
In this generation, especially when homeless people still fall into the hands of robbers, even right outside the doors of the city's most beautiful churches and other cities too. In this day, this moment, the way forward for us is to find ourselves in this parable, to see ourselves alongside the world's victims, not walking by, not even helping them as heroes, but as children of God together with all who stand in need of mercy and grace. Today, as we partake of bread, may we do so less with pride in what we have to offer and more in gratitude for what has been offered to us. As we partake of wine and juice, the familiar symbol of the blood of suffering, may we experience nothing less than the renewing grace of the risen Christ. And as we receive with open hands and lips, may they be matched with open ears and eyes and hearts. May it be so. Amen.